And if you have a Bible, we'll be turning to Matthew chapter 1 this evening as uh, we are invited tonight to attend the greatest celebration that we as people can and that can be contained on this side of heaven. And that is what Christmas offers us. And that's what the Christmas season offers us. And I think that uh, Matthew chapter 1, a, a chapter that no doubt you've heard preached and studied this time of year many, many times. Um, uh, I've enjoyed uh, preaching uh, several different messages from this chapter uh, in the past. But tonight we'll look at it um, uh, in, in a little different light than we have before uh, because I, I think that it just gives us a message that is so encouraging. And if there's any Christmas message that shows us our place in the story, I think it might be this one. So you know, the thing about Christmas time is you get to see a lot of people that you might not usually see, right? And that might be something you look forward to, and it might be something you don't look forward to, if we're being honest. Uh, you know, I mean, it's probably mutual. There's those people that we uh, don't ever see, but at Christmas time, and, you know, it's kind of hard to all of a sudden, you know, be uh, uh, friendly with people or be, you know, uh, comfortable around people that maybe you don't see all the time. And sometimes Christmas parties are, are, are super fun, and sometimes they're kind of awkward. And maybe you've got some of a mixture of both in your family or in your circles um, that you uh, kind of are in this time of year. Um, of course, it's good to see people that you don't get to see um, on normal times and in normal times. And Christmas sort of uh, allows for us to make time for and encourages us to make time for people and places that we just can't really find the time for other time of year. But uh, again, every Christmas brings a party or two, brings with it a gathering or two that puts us in a room or puts us in a house full of a lot of different kinds of people, people that we normally wouldn't see or be near. You know, our world is so busy. You don't need me to tell you that. Um, our world's so busy. We're all so busy. It's so hard to see immediate family on a regular basis even. Um, people work multiple jobs and, and extra activities and recreation, you know, requires all the free time that we have. Christmas is really the last holdover uh, in our world today where people at the same time, um, go out of their way to make time for each other and make time for family and, and, and friend and, and for gatherings. And, you know, and the odds are um, over the next week, over the next 10 days or so, you will be in the room with an eclectic assortment of people um, a, a, a couple times between now and Christmas or even past it a little bit. Uh, work parties, church parties, family and friend gatherings. You know, this is the season when we find ourselves in the same place with people that are much different than us. People, you know, we, we kind of all, and, and I don't know about y'all, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm someone, I'm an introvert. I'm a creature of habit on top of that, you know, and, and we all like to be around people that we like to be around and how it works. So we're not really around a lot of different people and a lot of the, you know, even people that we're related to and we're connected to, um, you know, if we don't have a lot in common or we don't really or aren't at the same place of life, we just don't really see them that often. So Christmas brings us all together and puts us all in the same room and you know, I think about it a lot. You know, why do we do this? Why every year around Christmas, you know, we've changed so much as a people, we've broken traditions, we've established new ones. Why, the, why is it still that we gather together this time of year? You know, I, I think there's the gravity in the air. I think there's some sort of force in the air. There's some sort of, it pulls us, right? And I think we all know that that's the, the work of God. That's the spirit of God. But I think even on a secular basis in our world, this time of year, there's sort of this gravity effect of Christmas that causes everybody to let their guards down and uh, leads us to make time that we normally wouldn't make time. And, and whether we realize it or not, it's fitting that the theme and message of Christmas, which is all about people of different layers, different levels of life, all about um, from different places, different interests, Christmas brings us to a shared 
place. It brings us to a common place. It brings us to level ground. You know, and whether we realize it or not, I think you could almost call Christmas the great equalizer. It's the event in history, but also it's the event every year that brings us all to a common ground. It brings us all to a place where maybe we show more grace than we would normally. Maybe we give more mercy than we would normally. Maybe we do a little bit more than we normally wouldn't do because there's something about Christmas that equalizes everybody. You know, Christmas invites us. Christmas invites us all to come to the same place and receive the same gift. No matter how different we are, and of course we're all so different, Christmas gives everybody the same universal invitation. Christmas doesn't just invite us. It's better than that. Christmas offers to cover the cost that may be required to overcome whatever distance may be between you and the gift. Christmas is all about covering that cost. No matter how far away you may be from the gift, no matter how much distance may be between you and the gift, Christmas offers to cover the cost required to bring you close. You know, no matter, we'll get into the specifics about what that gift of Christmas is in just a little while, but I wanna spend a little time talking about how Christmas is this great equalizer. And I hope as you attend Christmas services, as you come to our church party, as you come to, as you go to your parties, whether at work or you gather with your family, and, and as you see people that you maybe won't see again till next year, um, surely there'll be people that you really don't have anything in common with, and there'll be people that you interact with that maybe they're not on your list of favorite people in the world. Maybe they're relatives that you have that ire with or have that, you know, all against, but you come together for the sake of the season. Over the next week, I guarantee you'll find yourself in the back of your mind asking these kind of questions. What are they doing here? And you don't mean this to be mean or you don't mean this to be judgmental or maybe you do, but you don't want to admit it. You see people that come to the gathering that you're invited to and you wonder... What are they doing here? And you know why they're here, because of course everybody gets together this time of year. But maybe there's something in your mind that says, what are they doing here? And maybe after about 20 minutes or 30 minutes of kind of dealing with an environment that you're not really comfortable with, because again, everybody's kind of out of their comfort zone this season, maybe you begin to ask yourself, what am I doing here? And maybe you begin to wonder, why are we all in the same place? Why do we still do this? Why do we do this year after year? Why do we continue to gather in the same place and with the same people even though I wouldn't see them any other time of year. You know, I hope this message will help put in perspective and help make sense of all that is unique about this season and the opportunity we get to learn in this season. And we're going to study Matthew 1 tonight, which is usually a chapter that we skim. If you read your Bible through year after year or season after season, Matthew 1 is one of those chapters that you, I'm sure you've read it before, but you kind of just skim through it because it's a lot of names and, you know, really it's a clerical supplemental um, list of information that kind of opens us up to the story of Jesus, uh, much like some of the, the list of names in the book of Numbers, the book of Chronicles. You know, you kind of skim through them because who are these people and why should I read their name? And it's really just kind of, you know, what, what, what blessing is there for me in a verse of names that I know nothing um, of. But I think tonight when we behold this particular list of names as a package, when we say all of them in the same breath or two, what you find in this group of names is not some homogeneous group of people that are all the same, all of the same stock, all look, look the same, talk the same, worship the same. 
that's not this group of people. In the book of Numbers, when you read the list of names, you're reading people that are all the same tribe of the same family, and they're all pretty much the same kind of people. But when you read this list of names, this list of names is a group of people that are varied in so many ways, yet the one thing they have in common, they all share a place in the Christmas story, inviting us all to the Christmas party. You know, I'm thankful that we have this list prefacing the story of Jesus because maybe more so even than the story of the shepherds in the fields, more so than the wise men traveling from afar, more so than the traditional Christmas narratives, I think this passage helps us find our place in the Christmas story and invites us to the Christmas party of all Christmas parties. You know, we're not gonna read through every name because I don't, and, and, and that'll be good for y'all so you don't have to hear me stumble over a bunch of Hebrew names that I'm not very fluent in. But, but I wanna sort of frame this list for you and give you some resources and how to study this and, and get the most from it. But I want you to consider, um, consider all these names as people in a contemporary time period. Now they lived across several generations. Uh, but imagine if these, these people that we're gonna read about tonight, imagine if this list of names was the guest list for a party that you were invited to or that was being held and they were being invited to. Uh, imagine if this was one of those reunion shows where you could get everybody that's in this list or on this list. Imagine we could get them all in the same room, all the same time and maybe that can be pulled off in heaven one day maybe every Christmas in heaven that goes on I don't know uh, but imagine that we could do that now and everyone who made up Jesus's family tree imagine that we could gather them all to one big Christmas parties and I think the makeup of that Christmas party might not be too dissimilar from the what from what our Christmas parties look like or from what any party looks like in our world you know, at every Christmas party or at every big gathering, social gathering, you have a couple of different groups of people. You have your somebodies, you have your nobodies, and then you have your everybodies. And maybe you've never really thought about that last category, but we all know what the somebodies and the nobodies are. And maybe in some settings, you're the somebody. You're the, you're the person that people kind of whisper and say, hey, I know them and they do this and I work for them. Maybe you're the somebody. Maybe you're the nobody. And, and, and depending on what side of the fence you're on, right? We've all been on either one. And, and at, even at family gatherings, there are the somebodies and there are the nobodies, not to be mean toward anybody or not to lift up anybody over their, their place. That's just how the world works, right? There's people that are somebody. Sometimes people think they are and they're really not. And sometimes people think they're not somebody and they actually are. But we're used to those first two categories, but maybe you raise an eyebrow to that last group, which I think will be really a good conversation when we get there. But I wanna breeze past the first couple um, real quickly. At every party, there are the people that when they walk in the room, everybody looks their way. At every gathering, there are the people that maybe they're humble about it, but still they can't get rid of it. They can't shake it off. Everybody wants to talk to them. Uh, they're always the people who are the loudest in the room or they're the people that dominate every conversation. They're the people that everything naturally flows in their direction. And then there's those people that kind of just sit off to the side and never really bother anybody. And, and they kind of just are in the background. But isn't it true that if you remove the most popular person in the room, somebody else is gonna fill that vacuum because there's always a somebody who has you know, more clout or more recognition or more you know, social skills than somebody else. But there are quite a few somebodies on this list or in the family tree of Jesus. But the Bible really gives the attention to just two of them. And it wants us to focus on two of them because two of these men, two of the people are given a seat of importance above the others. 
And they're mentioned um, in the very first verse. And that's what Matthew 1 opens up with. Matthew 1, 1, as he opens this up to the genealogy of Jesus, he doesn't start out in chronological order. Actually, he starts out in reverse from chronological order. But he starts out by giving a shout out to the most prominent two people from the list. He says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So before he gets to the actual family tree, he says, I got to give you a shout out. I got to give a shout out to the most important people on the list, Abraham and David. Now there's something very, very important about Abraham and David that we might miss. And it's the reason they are grouped together. Of course, they are remembered by the Jewish people uh, because they are great people who did great things. But the reason they are at the top of this list is not because of their own accomplishments. And it's not because of their own merits. The reason why these two are the somebodies of the party is this. These two stand apart from the rest because they were recipients of great promises or maybe the greatest promises ever given from God. You see, we might would think that Abraham and David are recognized as the greatest of the group because of what they did. But if you really know their stories, they're not great because of what they did. They're great because of what God did in their lives. And they're a somebody, not because they made a somebody out of themselves, but because God picked them out of obscurity and made them really the foundation of the nation of Israel. Just to refresh you of, those, of their stories, Genesis 12 and 15 gives us Abraham's story. But pay attention to some of the language in, this, in these verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. So again, apart from God's intervention in this story, Abram remains a nobody, right? We talked about this last week. Abram was a nobody in a field, in, in, a, in a generation of nobodies. He was one of millions that were searching for God in the, every way they knew how. If not for God calling him from out of nowhere, he does not enter this story that I will show you. And it becomes even more obvious. This is all God's doing. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So what do we have very clearly given to us here? Abraham becomes a somebody because God makes him a somebody. In, in, in Abraham's story, the emphasis is very clear that Abraham was well aware that he was nobody special. In chapter 15, the story opens up and Abraham is very scared because of some of the threats that are coming against him. And God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So Abram is feeling very vulnerable and God reminds him, listen, this isn't your idea. You didn't make this happen. I am your shield. I am your reward. I'm the one that's orchestrating all this. And Abram says, well, Lord, what will you give me? Because I continue to be childless. Abraham is so insecure. He's so well aware that he is a nobody. And he, and he feels like a, he's just posing. He feels like he's just pretending because he has nothing. He's done nothing. He can do nothing to help himself. He's at the mercy of God. And that's how God wants us to be. God wants us to be back against the wall. I have no other choice but to trust in God. That's where he wants us tonight. 
And then God says to Abram, he takes him outside. He says, look toward the heavens, number the stars, if you can even number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And we know this famous verse, Abraham believed in the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. So what made Abraham the guy that we remember as the father of faith, the father of the nation of Israel? By trusting in the Lord's promises. Same thing goes for King David. Before he was King David, he was shepherd boy David. When he became king, God came to David and said, David, I've got big plans for you, but let me remind you where you came from. Listen to this from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. So again, we hear that same language God used to Abram, don't we? I took you from the pasture and I have been with you wherever you went and cut off your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name. We've heard that before, haven't we? I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So what is the message here? David, you are in my hand. I am doing this work. You are my vessel through which I'm showing the world. But I am the one who's making all this happen. Just continue to trust in me and I'll make you look good. From that time, from the time that I appointed, judge it over my people, Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. So again, we have this promise from God. David, you're nobody without me, but because of my promise, I'm gonna make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, immediately that was fulfilled through Solomon, but this is bigger than Solomon because the house that Solomon built, it would fall down and his throne would be taken. But the house that Jesus would build and the throne that Jesus would be given, that is an eternal house, an eternal throne. And you and I are a part of that house tonight. We are a part of the household of God And Jesus, of course, sits on that throne in heaven. But it's important to notice the backdrop for both of these men in both of their stories. Wherein these promises are made, in both instances, Abraham and David are both overcome with their own shortcomings and weaknesses. When God comes to them and makes these promises, they are well aware that they are nobodies. David says later on in that chapter, who am I that God would choose me? Over time, these two would be remembered for all the great things they did accomplish and gave rise to. Both were integral to the story of Israel. They followed God. They obeyed God. But make no mistake, Abraham and David's claim to fame was that God picked them and made them somebody in spite of their disqualifications because they had a lot, didn't they? Abraham was by far not a moral, was not the most moral person in the room. Abraham had some debilitating uh, moral issues that he showed in the way he raised his family and the way he conducted himself as a man. By all means, David was not the clean person uh, that, that we would expect someone after God's own heart would be. Yet they were chosen and they were included and they were made to be someone in spite of those disqualifications. And unlike the somebodies that we get the pleasure of hanging out with, 
These two never bragged about themselves. They were always pointing to God because he was their claim to fame. You see, if anybody is a somebody, if we think ourselves to be a somebody, it's only because God has given us that seat of importance. And if we are blessed with such a role in our families or communities, we best use that place to show everyone in the room that they're just as important as us. Because Christmas is the great equalizer. Christmas takes the promises God made to Abraham and David and extends them to us all. What does the prophet Isaiah say? Unto us a Savior is given. Unto us God has given us his Son. The rest of the folks in the room and the rest of the folks on this list make this believable and within reach of all of us. Because on the very same list uh, that David and Abraham are included in are a group of nobodies, and I mean nobodies that you'll never hear of and hear from anywhere else but this chapter, unless you read the very fine print of the Old Testament. Uh, The majority of this list contains relative nobodies, people that no one has ever heard of and nobody ever talks about, and no one would even remember if not for their inclusion in this list. I want you to pay particular interest to verses 3, 4, and then 12 through 15. Again, you may, if you're an Old Testament student, you may recognize these names, but apart from that very attention to detail, these names are pretty obscure. Look at verses three and four. Other than the first line there that includes Judah, we have mentions of people like Perez and Zerar, Tamar, Hezron, and Ram, Abinadab, Nashon, And Salmon, I mean, who names their kids after these biblical heroes? We didn't even know they were heroes, right? Until you read those verses. These are not the household names like many of the others in this list on this list are. Yet guess what? They're still on the list. And guess what? You don't get to verses 5, 6, and 7, 8, 9, and 10, and 11 unless you go through 3 and 4. That's very important to remember. Down in verse 12 through 15, we have some more relative nobodies. You have... A guy whose name is really cool, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abiad, Elikim, Azor, and I'm skipping the begots, so that's if you, if you are trying to follow. Uh, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Eliad, Eleazar, Mathan, and then we have another Jacob, not the, other, not the old Jacob, but a different Jacob. And then we get to Joseph. But again, nobody knows who those people are. And, and really, it is, it's especially sad for the people in verses 13, 12 through 15 because they existed in the intertestament period. You can read about Zerubbabel back in Ezra and Nehemiah, but apart from Zerubbabel, those guys existed in the intertestament period. They're not even mentioned. Their stories aren't even mentioned. We wouldn't even know they existed except for these three verses. But guess what? They made the list. These nobodies are included. These nobodies were invited to the Christmas story. And they're included in the Christmas guest list. You know, I've said this before, but these names mean nothing to us. But you know who they mean everything to? The people to whom they belong. Isn't it true? If that was your name, you would be highlighting it and underlining it and showing it to everybody, wouldn't you? But if it's not your name and you're not related to them, that name means nothing to you. And I understand that. It means nothing to most of us because we don't have their stories. 
But if it was our name, it would mean everything, wouldn't it? The fact that this list of names, this list contains a great amount of nobodies encourages me. And I think it should encourage you. Because whether we're ever known as someone special or not, that does not undercut or discount your ability to matter to the story of God. I know, I know, in the way church is nowadays, and the way you know, church culture is, everybody wants to be an Abraham and a David. Nobody says, Lord, make me uh, a, a Zadok from verse 14, or make me an Eleazar from verse 15, or make me a Jacob from verse 15, and people wouldn't even remember me because somebody else is named Jacob who's more important. No one ever prays those prayers because we're so focused on the fame and so focused on the attention, but these men were included just like the others. And even though they may be a nobody, they're in the Christmas story. But there's some more people on this list that I think are even more relevant to us. Um, There's the two somebodies, there's the few nobodies, but there are a group of people I like to call the everybodies. Because they're people that aren't known for the great things they did, but they're remembered for being imperfect. Their names are on this list with an asterisk beside them. And they're remembered for being nothing more than ordinary, sinful humans. Because that's what everybody is, right? which is what we all are. We often spotlight a few names on this list as scandalous. We often think, well, I can't believe they're in the story. But I think that's a little arrogant because we are as sinful as them. The point of their inclusion isn't to make us think, how could God use them? But it's to cause us to humbly understand that for God to use any of us is a miracle. For any of us to be on this list or in this story is a miracle. I know all of us have those people that we show up at a big Christmas party and maybe we look across the room and we think, what are they doing here? And they're probably thinking the same thing about you, right? What are they doing here? But the inclusion of everyday everybody's in this list is meant to punctuate that Christmas is for everybody. Christmas is for every sinner. Now, go with me down the list. We'll briefly touch on a few of these everybodies that we can all relate to. In verses number uh, two and three, we get these names. We get Jacob. Jacob, the schemer. Jacob, the heel catcher. Jacob, the guy that stole the birthright from his brother. Jacob, the guy that lied to his own dying father. Jacob, the guy that ran from God for 21 years, never so much as prayed a prayer. Jacob is on the list. Oh, by the way, Jacob, who was called Israel, not because of what he did, but because of what God would do. Judah and his brothers, and now you know why they're grouped together? It's because what are Judah and his brothers famous for? Throwing their little brother in a pit and selling him to Egyptian slave traders, right? That's what they're famous for, for being awful, for being sinners, Then there's Judah and Tamar. Now, we all have heard this story before. It's a little bit PG-13, maybe even worse than that. Judah Judah had a son who married Tamar, and that son died. And then he gave Tamar to his other son, and that son died as well. And then Judah began to think that Tamar must be cursed because it can't be his kids because, I mean, he's a great, Judah was an upstanding man. How would his kids be anything less than that? Of course, we know the real Judah. Well, Judah promised Tamar that she could marry his youngest son, but he did not keep that promise. The story goes that 
Tamar played the role of a temple prostitute, and who would she entertain one day but her own father-in-law, Judah, who did not know it was her, but shouldn't have been looking in that direction anyway. The story goes that Judah finds out that Tamar is pregnant by way of playing a prostitute. Judah becomes very indignant and very self-righteous and says we should burn her at the stake. And Tamar says, well, before you burn me at the stake, you might want to identify whose staff this is that was left at my place, whose identification this is. Of course, it was Judah's. And Judah cowered from the back of the room and caught off the execution, fell on his knees in front of Tamar and said, you are more righteous than me. Of course, Tamar's conception from Judah gave two sons, that's Perez and Zerah, these two twins. One of them, of course, would give birth to Hezron, who would continue the lineage in the Messianic line. Now, we might think this is a scandalous story, but are they any more scandalous than us? Yet, just like us, there they are in the Christmas story. Everybody is included. If you go down the list, you, hear the, you, you see the name Rahab. We know Rahab. Rahab the prostitute, the innkeeper. Rahab who uh, was of the city of Jericho. We, we see Ruth who was a great person but was a Gentile and wouldn't have been in this story um, if it had been squeaky clean and buttoned up like the Jews would have liked it to be. Uh, then we get down to verse 7 and we get Rehoboam. Uh, we read a little farther and we get um, Ahaz in verse 9 and we get Manasseh in verse Now, I bring up these guys. These are not very famous kings, but they were nonetheless kings. Rehoboam is the one who took the kingdom from his father Solomon and bragged about raising taxes and putting a burden on the people they could not bear. Rehoboam is responsible for the nation splitting in half. Ahaz is the king that rather than trusting in God and heeding Isaiah's Isaiah's prophecy, Ahaz goes and makes a deal with the Assyrian king and bows to the Assyrian king. And the Bible says it did not help him, but it cost him his life. Manasseh is Hezekiah's son, and Manasseh is the king who the Bible gives, the Bible blames Manasseh as the one who took Judah across the line of no return because Manasseh sacrificed children to the pagan gods. Because Manasseh uh, did not trust in the Lord, God told the people that there would be no return, the nation would be destroyed. Then we see the mention of Jeconiah and his brothers. If you know the story of Jeremiah, um, Jeconiah was one of the many kings across the period that when Jeremiah kept saying, repent, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, surrender to God, Jeconiah would not surrender. He was too prideful. But these men that might not seem like winners to us, they're more like sinners. They're included in the Christmas story. Because guess who Christmas is for? Everybody. Even these pieces of work. You see, Matthew's list is meant to normalize a kingdom. A kingdom of redemption. A kingdom of inclusion. A kingdom of equal opportunity for everybody. It's not just for the somebodies. It's for everybody. Down in verse 21, when the Christmas story that we all are familiar with picks up, the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says to him, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And the angel makes this promise to Joseph concerning the son that they will bring into the world. 
And this is the Christmas verse, really. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. That's a, such a big phrase. He will save his people from their sins. Notice the contrast. His people, their sin. Who are his people? Well, for starters, just look back at the list of people from whom he came. His people are the sinners on this list and everybody like them, including me and including you. We've just scratched the surface of what their sins were and believe me, they were plenty more than what we've covered. Of course, if you read the gospels, it's clear that Jesus came to call more people to himself, not just the people that were related to him, but he would not have a natural family, he would have a spiritual family. He would embrace people and accept people that the rest of the world did not embrace and did not accept that religion turned away. And one of those men that he embraced and one of those men that he invited to his group, his family, is the man that's writing this story, Matthew. And I, I got to think that Matthew had to grin from ear to ear as God led him to write this book. Matthew had to grin from ear to ear as he began the story of Jesus with a list of names featuring sinners like him. Featuring a list of people, everybody's like him. Matthew was a tax collector, a sellout, a reprobate, condemned by the Jewish law. Matthew heard these wild rumors that there was a new movement from God, that Jesus was inviting people in spite of their sins. Maybe he wondered, maybe there's room for me. Maybe I can be invited into this family. Maybe there's a way for me to get out of the lifestyle that I've been stuck in and that I've been condemned by. Perhaps Matthew wondered if he could be included and if you ever wonder how that story goes wonder meets reality over in Matthew 9 Jesus walks up to Matthew's tax collector booth in the center of town and to the shock and awe of everybody in the room or everybody in the street Jesus says to Matthew you're invited to follow me over in Matthew 9 Jesus invites Matthew and Matthew 9 verse 9 says Jesus passed on from there he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax office. He said to him, follow me. And Matthew arose and followed him. Where are we going, Jesus? And, and verse 10 says, it happened. Jesus sat at the table in the house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So where was Jesus inviting Matthew? To a party full of sinners like him. Matthew sat at the table that night with other rejects and outcasts and sinners. Religious leaders criticized Jesus because they didn't think that those men should be invited. They wanted to be invited, but they got mad when Jesus invited people that weren't like them. They wanted the somebodies to be there, but they didn't want the everybody's, the sinners to be there. Jesus told the religious leaders that unless they realized they were just as sinful and unwell as those they condemned, they would end up getting thrown out of the party one day that they would not have the garment on they needed and they would not make it. The religious leaders, they were incredulous because they did not understand how could someone who claimed to be from God, how could someone who claimed to be God's son be in fellowship with sinners, which is a really legitimate concern. How could Jesus, the son of God, be at the same table as sinners and tax collectors? Matthew would say it's the same way that the list of 
Jesus' family is full of sinners like me. They had been taught all their life that God does not tolerate sin. They lived in bubbles trying to stay clean, not realizing they had the same sin in their hearts. That's why Jesus ridiculed them. But the point still stood. How could God all of a sudden tolerate sin and sinners when in the Old Testament he could not and he would not and he was veiled away? Well, that's why I think Matthew gives us the genealogy he gives us because he's highlighting God has been including sinners and everybody's in the story all along. Not because he endorsed it or approved of their sin, but because he had a plan to save them from their sin. And what was his plan? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. How could God claim sinners as his own? Because isn't that what Jesus is saying here? He will save his people. Who are his people? The sinners. How could God claim sinners as his own? Well, the answer is really simple. Jesus claimed sinners as his own because he was going to claim their sin as his own and die for it. He will save them from their sins. He took our sins and made them and and became sin for us. Isn't that what the Bible says? He became sin who knew no sin. He took our sin. He claimed us. He claimed our sin. That's how he saved us from our sins. He claims us. He claimed our sin in order to save us from it. Romans 5, 6 goes like this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely will, a, uh, will someone die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we have now been justified by his blood. You know, the family tree of Jesus shows us the lineage, shows us the bloodline of the Messiah. And when you and I are washed in the blood of Jesus, when we're saved, we're brought into his bloodline. We are justified by his blood. We are made family members of Jesus. We are brought into the Christmas story. This list has some somebodies and some nobodies, but most of it is a a lot of everybodies, a lot of sinners like us. May we remember every Christmas, it's by the grace of God alone that we are saved. But thanks be to God, he will save his people from their sin so that we might be washed in his blood, so that we might be included. So let's use this season to extend this invitation to all because that's why Jesus came, to invite and include everybody in his family to invite and include everybody in the Christmas party. Over the next couple of weeks, as you see people that you don't normally see and you wonder, what are they doing here? Let us remember how we got in the story and let us pay the glory to God, give the glory to God for being included and let's sing his praises more than ever this year. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Church, thank you all for being with us tonight. Thank you for hearing God's word. And I pray that this 
ordinary list of names might show you that God has done an extraordinary work. He has included you and me in the Christmas story and invited you and me to his glorious Christmas party. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house tonight. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you for including us. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But just like with Abraham and David, you made the way and you brought us into your family. Lord, thank you for washing us, for justifying us by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for causing that royal messianic blood to give us a place in the family of God. Lord, I I thank you that you let Matthew write this story because it's even more powerful coming from him. Because you made a place for him, he made a place for us. Everybody is invited and included by way of Jesus. Lord, we give you thanks and glory for all these things. In Jesus' name we ask and pray, amen.